Critic Derek Adams of Time Out said that this movie is most successful when it keeps to the tone of an insane fairy story set up at the beginning of the movie. Village Voice critic Richard McGinnis said, The fact that it isn't very funny and, like its 80-year-old heroic, long outlives its necessary life, is less important than the fact that the characters frequently react gently or like credible human beings to the script's impossible notions. And Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times said that the visual style makes everyone look fresh from the wax museum, and all the movie lacks is a lot of day-old gardenias and lilies and roses in the lobby, filling the place with a cloying sweet smell. Nothing more to report today. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Harold and Maude. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters! Hey everyone, it's me, John, and Dan is here too. As as always. As Literally always. because I just do not leave this this room. We are in my classroom, my <laughs> I, office. Yeah, I'm I, sitting at my at-home desk. Yeah. We are here. And this is Ruined Childhoods. It's Ruined Everybody's Childhoods favorite time. podcast yes. about cult and classic movies and what could possibly happen if they were to be rebooted, remade, given the prequel, the sequel, a different type of adaptation, you name it. Graphic novel. I don't know. Just any type of new life for these properties. And let's face it, yes, original ideas are are the bomb. We love original ideas. But that doesn't seem to be what what the the I mean, I guess now it's you know, it's <laughs> it's an even playing field because even like big studio blockbusters aren't blockbusters. Yeah. yeah. And you've got uh, as much of a I think you've you've got more of a chance actually to make money with a with a smaller film right absolutely so yeah so cinema in the age of covid yeah so on our our last episode we really dipped our toes for the very first time we're like 90 episodes into this thing and we finally get to a coen brothers movie and i loved editing it i listened back to it afterwards i just really love being in the in the cohen universe and uh something that i wanted to to mention that um feeding off of something that we had talked about last time is uh you had mentioned that you know even though there are like little links between um cohen brothers movies though it does not exist in a cinematic universe like Ed, certain Edgar Wright movies or Quentin Tarantino movies or whatever. Right. Uh, something that I heard on uh, the Unspooled podcast, which just released an episode on Raising Arizona. So, of course, no I kidding. had to listen to that. Yeah. Oh, wow. And um, Paul Shear mentioned that Hi worked at Hudsucker Industries. I mean, this is before Hudsucker Proxy, but it's just right. like that's just the name of the company that he's working for. I don't, I guess when he's drilling holes in metal <laughs> that's his job i guess but i guess that was hudsucker industries which uh which is a fun little a little link and another thing that i noticed is that um in 
the Fargo series, the way that the title comes up at the beginning of each episode, the word Fargo, it's like a black background and the letters are essentially cut out so that you see the scene behind it and then you kind of push into the scene through the letters. And that's how they do it in Raising Arizona, which I was, I listened to the unspooled episode and I was like, oh, uh, I should watch Raising Arizona. And sure enough, that's how that's how they do that one. And I was like, okay, well, that is clearly an intentional move to, um, as, as a nod. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and one other thing I wanted to mention about the Fargo series, I know Dan, you haven't spoken in like five minutes. I, we've only been recording for four, but you haven't spoken in five. So the, um, the Fargo series is really special for me to watch because as a video editor, I, really admire the way that it is cut and I take a lot from that show in and bring it into the work that I do. I don't do narrative editing uh, or I haven't yet and I still find ways to incorporate some of the styles that are done both in the editing visually and also uh the music. So hats off to uh the editing the post-production crew of of the Fargo FX series. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really well made show and and I'm uh enjoying I don't know how deep I am into season I don't really look at the season episodes because it's usually just like play next episode mm-hmm. yeah. and until all of a sudden I realize I've fallen asleep and missed ten minutes and then oh okay, I guess it's time to go to bed. Uh, so I've been watching and there's an I found, you know, another connection to the movie with the mm-hmm. TV series in season three when one of you and McGregor's characters, he plays plays twins, but uh, when he, Emmett, as Emmett, the uh, parking lot king of, right. of the Midwest, he mentions- The wealthier Stussy twin. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he mentions Stan Grossman. Oh, does he? And mentions like bringing a deal, like checking a deal out with Stan Grossman and bringing it to Stan Grossman. Oh, so that made me think is of that like- when he's, Is he talking with David Thewlis and then is that when David Thewlis goes into the whole- thing about like well it doesn't really sound like you're the boss if you're consulting with this guy no no No, uh he's just it's just him and michael michael stuhlbarg oh michael stuhlbarg oh i love him he is yeah another actor from the cohen universe yes a serious man which we just watched recently uh that movie is incredible uh, dare i say academy award-worthy performance by richard kind Richard Kind, okay, the details that they have for Richard Kind, having to drain the cyst, like, ugh, the, it's his so, weird math that he has, like, his notebooks, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Richard um, Kind is so good in that. Such a good movie. I, I need to go back to that again. But one more, my one more thing for, for Fargo and for the Coens in general is just thinking about their writing and thinking about what makes it stand out repetition their mm. use of repetition of certain phrases certain you know in fargo whether it's the yeah 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 or the you ask stan grossman like how many times do mm-hmm. they say that and it goes throughout all of their movies uh lebowski definitely mm-hmm. oh brother where art thou? we're, we're shut in the a tight fuck spot. up donnie we're yeah shut the fuck up donnie um you're out of oh, Yep, you're out of your element. Um, there's what, whatever in with, with the whole Papio Daniel uh, thing. They always say the they always have like there's the same. 
it's kind of like the yes men who always have the same mm-hmm. lines. It's almost like something. It's almost like something out of like musical theater, like a guys and dolls type of show. But they do it to this point where it repeats so much throughout the movie. And there's an, like, uh, oh, oh, brother, where art that with the uh, um, was Tim Blake Nelson uh, looking at John Turturro like, we thought you was a toad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, I, and speaking of other movies, speaking where they of Tim do Blake that. Nelson, we didn't talk about Ballad of Buster Scruggs, uh, and the only reason why I didn't talk about that one in the list of uh, schmucks schmozing no good nicks is mm. just because even though it's called the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, it's just little vignettes. There's little connection between them, uh, character wise, um, and so I didn't really because you could. I'd have to rewatch the whole thing to to really right. pick him out. But, but Buster Scruggs, uh, I have a no good Nick. No good Nick, I'd say. Yeah, if I, no from good what Nick, I remember, I mean, I watched it when it came out, but not since then. I just remember him like singing. There was like a song, like he's singing that song, and then all of a sudden, and he, you think he's like more of that like Alden Ehrenreich type character mm, yeah. from um, Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. And then you realize what he's singing about now. He just like uh, runs around like he goes shooting people. Yeah. Oh. And it's like, oh, no, he's not a good guy. Yeah. Total no good, Nick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so unless there's anything else you want to talk about with Fargo, oh. I'd love to. Oh, go ahead. I had one more reflection on the idea we were talking about of that Fargo is all about how far people will go. <laughs> for money <laughs> okay is that, that was it that's it <laughs> that okay. was it that well how far people will go yeah far I mean, go. from from what i understand the uh the reason why it's called fargo is just because brainerd doesn't sound as good but uh, also <laughs> it's about how far people will go for money fine. that's fine okay <laughs> I'll let you have it. I'll let you have it. It was already a victory the moment that that I like that it, it came to me during the middle of whatever God knows else I was supposed to be doing. And when I was just like, oh, far go. Far, far go. <laughs> I was such a like, I figured out who Kaiser Soze is moment. Totally. Yeah. The coffee mug. Crashed. There could be something to it. There could be something to it. I don't know. I did not go that far okay. in researching. So people who are just tuning in to this show, maybe because they wanted to listen to people talk about Harold and Maude, this is your moment. We're 10 minutes into this. This is your time. We're talking about Harold and Maude, the 1971 Hal Ashby classic. This is his second film, I believe, second feature film. It's written by Colin Higgins, who was, uh, he originally was, considered to direct but when he i don't know didn't uh shine i I believe that what happened was they asked him to like just direct a scene just like they gave him like thirty thousand dollars like shoot a scene and he just went way overboard and kind of shot himself in the foot a little bit and uh it went to hal ashby so i'm glad it did because hal ashby is a fantastic direct fantastic director um Huge fan. And a lot of the things that I'm going to mention are things that I uh, heard Charles Mulvihill talk about. Who uh, He was one of the producers. Um, he talked about it on the commentary track on the Criterion Blu-ray. I, I learned a lot from, from listening to that. Definitely pretty interesting. Oh, that commentary wasn't offered on 
Prime, Amazon um, Prime, where I streamed it. Yeah, uh, this is up until the other day my only Criterion Blu-ray. I have some Criterion DVDs, but uh, and it, actually, this is something that we that we never have talked about. But we're watching a lot of movies that are pretty older that we haven't seen since we were much younger. This is our probably first time seeing most of these. Not on like VHS or in like crappy resolution, like in uh, actual. For some of them, yeah. I'm talking about anything that wasn't theatrically that we saw in the theaters, pretty much, and you know, unless it's right. a, a regular one that is streaming that we watch regularly. But you know, no, yeah, the things that you know from from back in the day. Yeah, and seeing Why especially not? ones that are a little bit have a little bit more flash and pizzazz to them, something mm. like I don't know Dick Tracy. Seeing that in a higher definition is a, a much different experience than watching it on VHS. Oh yeah, well I mean watching it, you know, unless unless you were like me, and once you fig- figured once you found out about letterboxing, you tried to get every VHS tape in mm-hmm. let, like letterboxed. Yeah, um, you also were watching these movies in a pan and scan format on yeah. VHS. So yeah. that's why I was so excited that when DVDs were just all widescreen, because I loved I loved widescreen because it made me feel like I was watching it in the theater on the screen. Right. And that's yeah. the experience I want from from a movie. Now, of course, totally. ironically, things have come full circle and TV is has become as cinematic, if not more cinematic, right. than than movies. Speaking of Fargo. Yeah. So Harold and Maude is one that I think I probably saw when I was in my early 20s. I don't remember the circumstances, but I saw it and I connected with it not because I related to the characters, but there was just something about it that spoke to me. And I think that because at that point in my life, there already had been... Uh, a few Wes Anderson movies that have this like very twee quality to them. Uh, I was already like prone to be really into a movie like Harold and Maude. Well, know? yeah, this is if you're if 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 you know you're a Wes Anderson fan, and of course you know kind of coming of age in the mid '90s, and yeah. you know Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and then seeing something like Harold and Maude, which so clearly has inspired Wes Anderson. I would say both. Yeah. In, Rushmore comes up a lot. Well, when tone, people talk about it, but like in many ways, because I feel like it very much, it not only has the style, like a similar style mm-hmm. to Wes Anderson's work, but a similar tone, a lot of grays with pops of color. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But this was actually my first time seeing the whole movie. That's right. Well, let's let's do a short synopsis and then we'll talk more about uh, your first full impressions. Happily. Harold, the 20 year old son of a wealthy socialite, has had a fascination with death ever since a failed experiment in a science class resulted in his mother dramatically reacting to the news that he had, in fact, died. Since then, he's been elaborately faking suicides in order to elicit a similar response. This has also sparked his interest in attending funerals as a form of recreation. At one such funeral, he sees Maud, a woman 59 years his senior, who also enjoys attending funerals, except she sees them as a reminder to live a full life. 
After the two become friends, Maud gives Harold a brand new outlook. They steal cars together in order to liberate a city tree so it can be in its natural habitat. They punk Harold's military-obsessed uncle by convincing him that Harold wants to join the military so that he can kill for sport. They sing and dance together, Maud even gives him a banjo. They even enjoy a few tokes from a hookah together. After one romantic trip to an amusement park and a night of passion, Harold helps Maud celebrate her 80th birthday with a delightful personal party. What Harold doesn't realize is that Maud had always planned to go out on her own terms and kill herself on her 80th birthday. Distraught, Harold does all he can to try to revive her, but Maud ends up getting her way. After which Harold takes a long drive in his hybrid Jaguar slash hearse and launches it off a cliff, leaving the audience wondering for a moment if he is joining Maud in the great beyond. However, we see Harold skipping away, plucking on his banjo. This movie came out, geez, 50 years 1971. ago? 1971. Yeah. Almost. So, almost, yeah. Yeah, so, um, spoilers, <laughs> but it's it's no. been long enough. Everyone's had plenty of time. Although, I had, I didn't know. I had no you, idea okay. how it was going to end. I'm so glad I didn't. That's fair. So so Ruth Gordon plays Maud. Uh, people probably most remember her from this or her Oscar-winning performance in Rosemary's Baby, which just a, a few years before. It was at 68, I think. Uh, yeah, I think so. That's nice. Where is it? That's the TV room? Uh, well, only temporarily. It's going to be a nursery. Oh, you're pregnant? No, not yet. I hope to be as soon as we're settled. Wonderful. Well, you're young and healthy. I have lots of children. We plan to have three. Yeah, we've got Bud Court as Harold in a career-defining role. And he actually pops up in um, Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. So he's part of the Wes Anderson universe. He has kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, joined the next the next rung of he, twee movies. He's the bridge. Isn't he? Is he the accountant in that? The, the, uh, the auditor? Yes, he's the auditor. Oh, he's great. I love him. He's wonderful. He's great. He's so good in that. Mr. Ubel, I'd like you to know Steve Zizou and our equity partner, Ned. I hope you're not going to bust our chops, Bill. Why would I do that? Because you're a bond company, Stooge. I'm also a human being. All right, I take that back. Yeah. Let's have some teamsmanship. Vivian Pickles is so good as Harold's mother, who's just totally self-absorbed. Uh, we'll talk more about the computer dating uh, oh that, that she does. Oh. Um, and as the, the highway patrolman, Tom Skerritt, you love to see Tom Skerritt. Um, it's always, always nice to see Tom Skerritt pop yeah. up on, on my screen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, I, I just mentioned the computer dating thing. I'll just talk about it a little bit. So uh, while all of this is happening, Harold's mother decides that it's time for him to find a bride. And so she signs him up for a computer like blind dating system. And she's... <laughs> Going through the questionnaire and she's just <laughs> answering for him slash herself. Oh no, I don't think that would be good. Like, she's, do you think of what she? It said there's that one question about do you think a woman could serve as as president? Oh. And, and, and oh no, you definitely don't think that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm going to put in the entire clip right now. Oh, wonderful, wonderful! It's so good. 
Are you uncomfortable meeting new people? Well, I think that's a yes. Don't you agree, Harold? Should sex education be taught outside the home? Oh, I would say no, wouldn't you, Harold? Yeah, we'll give a D there. Three, should women run for president of the United States? I don't see why not. Absolutely, yes. Do you remember jokes and take pleasure in relating them to others? Now, you don't do that, do you, Harold? No, absolutely no. Do you often get the feeling that perhaps life isn't worth living? Hmm? What do you think, Harold? A, B? Oh, we'll put down C, not sure. Hmm. Hmm. Is the subject of sex being overexploited by our mass media? Well, that would have to be yes, wouldn't it? <laughs> Is it difficult for you to accept criticism? No, we'll mark D. Do you sometimes have headaches or backaches after a difficult day? Yes, I do indeed. Do you go to sleep easily? I'd say so. Do you believe in capital punishment for murder? Oh yes, I do indeed. In your opinion, are social affairs usually a waste of time? Heavens, no. Can God influence our lives? Oh, yes. Absolutely, yes. Does your personal religion or philosophy include a life after death? Oh, yes, indeed. That's absolutely. Did you enjoy life when you were a child? Oh, yes, you were a wonderful baby, Harold. Do you think the sexual revolution has gone too far? It certainly has. Do you find the idea of wife-swapping distasteful? I even find the question distasteful. So another thing that's great is Harold sees a therapist. And at each session, they are dressed identically. Did you notice that? Yes. It's never mentioned, but they're always wearing suits and ties, pocket squares, the whole nine. But they're dressed exactly the same. And I love that. I wish that there was some sort of, and from what I understand, there's no real reason behind it. It's just that, like, the art director or costume designer just thought it would be funny, and they just went with it. It fits with the style of that movie, but I would also buy, like, I'd also buy it that somehow Harold is planning this and doing it just to, like, screw with the therapist. That's, see, it it kind of tracks with his ability to set up elaborate things that don't make any sense. Like, they almost seem unreal. Like, the way that he stages these suicides, they seem, like, impossible for somebody to fake, you know, especially, like, a 20-year-old kid on their own. He puts a lot of imagination and, and resources yeah. into these things. He doesn't half-ass it. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it, the the whole computer dating thing is... It's so is funny. Ridiculous. And the mother is so... It works because she's so removed. And oh, yeah. so, I mean, it's the the first... It's the, the introduction, and it's the first thing in that, you know, the first time you meet her in the beginning of the movie... When she walks in, he's hanging there. And, you know, as the audience, if you're seeing it for the first time and right. you don't know, you you think he's just hung himself because you're watching. Uh, and I love the way it's shot. It's shot beautifully. It is shot. Yeah, so beautifully. There's a lot that's beautiful, but I want to go back to something that you mentioned about how that it's never mentioned why he dresses up like the therapist. And that is a strength 
of this movie is that it lets things be and it lets yeah the audience well there's a magical realism to so many things the the suicides they're like the way that he is hanging there doesn't seem to be a rig or anything It, it just seems like this is just what he you know i i mean the chopping his arm off during the second blind date is uh I mean, he uh, he'd have to have some very quick sleight of hand to to make that work. Um, <laughs> the the Harikari in the well, um, in the third blind date is the only one where you're where you really see the the fake knife. But that that one's great. I love it because she's totally into it. She's totally into it. Well, she's this actress and takes herself she's an actress, very of course seriously. She's freaky. Yeah. And what I love about that one is like you can tell that Harold is kind of like. He kind of likes her because yeah. she's so out there. And it's like, had it not been for Maud, maybe he would have explored this relationship. But it, she definitely made him think a little bit. Uh, and then the first one, he sets himself on fire outside. And uh, yeah. So anyway, there's that this magical realism. Also, when, yeah. um, when they're in, uh, I'm, I'm trying to call it Ruth, when they're in Maud's home, which is a train car, which is awesome, uh, she starts playing the piano and then she gets up and starts dancing and the piano is still going and there it just tracks there is this there's something about this world that doesn't all make sense well it's it's a slightly skewed universe a lot like wes anderson's movies where mm-hmm. they are set in this slightly alternate world like i think about tenenbaums and right grand you know, budapest it's, hotel yeah. grand budapest hotel definitely and I would say being like to talk about other Hal Ashby films, I would say being there as well. And, I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about being there some other time. Yeah. But it it also has this like he, the it's established so clearly. And it's in, in Harold and Maude, it's established right from the beginning that, yeah, you you just you go with it. Oh, totally. Yeah. But it's the kind of thing where in any other movie, these things would come up in like the IMDb goofs section and it's like, nope. No, totally intentional. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, one really powerful moment. And I loved uh, this is, this was what made me say like, Oh, this is, it's so great because they say all they need to say without saying it is when he sees the number tattooed on her arm. Yeah. It's, it lasts for half a second. It's never brought up, but yet as a viewer, it adds so much depth and context to her. It makes a lot of sense why she embraces life and looks at death as inspiration to to live a full life and to do things on her own terms because yeah, that was taken exactly. from her. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But I think it also it, it also points out to Harold and spotlights that he's been treating death as this like hobby as right. this game and it really is something very serious. Well, but also there you know when he is telling Maud about the the incident that kind of brought him into this world of death, this this science experiment that uh went wrong but he got out of just fine but she was under the impression that he died and though he describes the way that she like puts her hand on her forehead and like leans back against something. And it's just like a very dramatic reaction. 
you know, clearly he has this, you know, well, what he says is just like that at that moment, I realized that I enjoyed being dead more than I enjoyed being alive. You know, seeing the reaction that it gets from people, seeing the getting the idea that his mother actually might miss him, which she doesn't give that impression the entire time. Now, I I think I think I I kind of read that scene a little differently or I read like in his explanation of her reaction because when I heard him explain it I actually felt like her reaction was put on for whoever was delivering she was at this a news dinner party or something yeah, yeah yeah so it was like and I thought that what he got from it was like she doesn't give a shit she's doing this to put on a show for everybody and that it, it he was like you know what if she does like maybe if she saw it happen yeah i i mean I, yeah that's that there was, was how definitely I, was just there how was I definitely it. and this is me speaking without knowing anything <laughs> but that's the theme of the show but there is definitely some sort of you know there's a lot of like there's an edible thing going on where he doesn't have the the love and affection from his mother and he meets this older woman who you know, pays attention to him and wants to asks him questions, wants to know what he likes, wants to know what he wants to do with his life. Mm. And I see how he could be drawn to that, even coming out of a place where he doesn't want to do anything except for go to these funerals. He goes to uh, junkyards and demolition sites for fun, but that's mm-hmm. just about it. Um, but she shows him a little bit more and he's open to it, I think, because he wants that maternal figure in his life and maybe also so, to bang her. Well, that's the, and it's funny because mentioning like the funeral thing about how they both kind of go to funerals for kicks. It reminded me a lot of Fight Club. Mm, the way yeah. Edward oh, Norton. The support groups. Yeah. The I, way, and I wonder, I, with Helen Bottom Carter. Yeah. Yeah. And I really wonder if that was pulled from Harold and Maude. Or inspired by Harold and Maude. Yes. And then I also was watching this movie thinking to myself, this is just a few years after The Graduate. Yeah. This is kind of the the anti-graduate. It is. Well, yeah, because... And and this kind of leads up to my... Uh, a question that I want to get your take on. Because the, it's the anti, anti-graduate because in The Graduate... Benjamin's just kind of, you know, wrapped up a lot in himself and is using, whether it's Mrs. Robinson or Elaine, kind of using them. And that's where I feel like Harold and Maude diverges, where I don't think it's necessarily like, oh, it's the graduate, but, you know, a little more extreme and different. Yeah, it's the counterculture version. Do you think that they are genuinely... In love. Or should I say that Harold is genuinely in love with her? I don't think that she is as much in love with him. Uh, I I do think that he believes that he is in love with her. And, and I, I say that because, I mean, clearly, love is a complicated thing. <laughs> and for him, that's what that's what's important to him, is the things that she's drawing out of him. I mean... Uh, this is something that I learned from the commentary track, but if you look at his complexion going from the beginning of the movie to the end, 
he starts off extremely pale. And as he spends more time with her, color comes into his face. He be, he's he's alive now. Like he actually his clothes, his clothes, are his more, clothing too. Yeah, yeah, he wears a lot of lighter colors and fun patterns and things like that. And um, but yeah, and I, and I think that being in love with her doesn't. I don't know if that's necessarily the most important thing. Clearly, they do love each other. They mm-hmm. care about each other a lot. Um, yes. And even if they are, whether they are in a relationship or not, I don't think that that's as important to Harold as her being kind of his Sherpa and, you know, bringing him out of this this coma that he's been in. Yeah. And... Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's it's really lovely. There's the moment after the uh, the carnival or whatever where he, you know, gives her the thing and says, Harold loves Maud and, you know. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was really what did beautiful. You think, so what was the moment where you had in the past ended it? Like what, were the, what was it oh, that you hadn't seen until recently? I just always fell asleep. I just always Got fell it. asleep. And I mean, honestly, like, and it's just... You know, is it the amazing Cat Stevens soundtrack that lulls you to sleep? It is so pleasant and calming. And I think that's part I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is just the the general mood and pace of it, where it's the kind of movie that if you're especially if you're trying to watch it at night after a long day of, of work, it it's a little bit harder to to stick with. So but whereas in the past, like I, I never really like I would come back to it and try to start it over mm. again and then bottom out. I mean, I would get to where he meets Maud, but really not not really? I would say not further than like a like 30 minutes. Yeah, not even not even really to the first date. It, it, it's a it's not it, it it's a little bit of a challenging movie to get into. Yeah, well, I mean. Early 70s, it's not like there's not a lot of action to it. It's, you know, it's definitely a a thinker. It's, you know, one that you want to just absorb. And if you're not in the right mode for it, then it's not going to click. But, you know, this is your homework. I love love (laughs) movies from that era. Sure. And it's just one of those movies that kind of, it's also kind of hard to, like, if your brain is kind of trying to categorize it, it's, it's really difficult to, and it takes some time because it has this mix. Like you mentioned that, that magical realism, there's that mix of the absurdity, like the character of the uncle Who's my God? Practically something out of Doctor Strange. I was just going to say Doctor Strange. Love, yeah. So he's missing an arm, and he has his uniform, the sleeve to his uniform, kind of like just just so, like fastened in a certain way. And when he pulls on a cord by his medals, it pulls the sleeve up into a salute. It's brilliant. Very Coen Brothers, actually. Very Coen Brothers <laughs> and very Doctor Strange. Love, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, his character is nuts, and and. Just to add on, uh, talking about the the magical realism, Harold does break the fourth wall. He looks at the audience at one point. He gives them a little sideways smile after the first yeah. computer date. And uh, oh yeah, that's yeah. Great. So it's just another way of letting you know, like this isn't like other movies. 
No, but another important aspect of the uncle's character and the the military is that this movie is being made and released during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And it has Harold is worried he's going to get drafted or that he's going to go to Vietnam. And even though it's not, it's another one of those things that's not mentioned, but they put there's just enough in there that you know that Vietnam is definitely a presence hanging over this movie and that same idea of life and death. And so much Mm -hmm. of the country was experiencing that through Vietnam. Yeah. And, and Hal Ashby, uh, staunchly anti-war hippie. If you see a picture of the dude, you're like, Oh yeah, actually he's, he shows up in Harold and Maude just in the carnival scene. There's a, just a shot of him, just this weird hippie staring off. (laughs) That's him. Yeah. No, very, very anti-war. And, but so clever to make a film that, that comments on war without really commenting on war. Well, I mean, they're, they are commenting on war only in that scene where I, his Harold's mother is going to send him off to his uncle to get him to, join the military and because she's through with his antics and uh, he is overly zealous and is like so excited about, you know, killing people in hand-to-hand combat and taking ears as souvenirs and making necklaces out of them and stuff. And, and then Maud is over there with a, a, an anti-war sign and he goes up to her and is yelling at her and she just falls through a hole in the ground and disappears. (laughs) It's so weird. Yeah, that's it's another. So weird. That's another one. Doesn't make any sense. She's bone dry when we see her next. Right. Yeah. And absolutely fine. Yeah. And she's 80. So. She, Ruth Gordon rules. Joe falls back. A neat red hole in the middle of his head. Only one thing kept going through my mind. Kill. Kill. For Joe and Mac and all the rest of the guys. Kill. And then there was a blinding flash. I woke up on a stretcher. Did we hold? I asked the medic. Yes, sir, he said. And I slipped into unconsciousness. Boy, wow, that's a terrific story, sir. Well... You'll have stories like that to tell of your own someday, Harold. Do you, do you think so, sir? Sure you will. Gee, I, I, I never dreamed it could be that exciting. Uh, that's the most exciting thing in the world, Harold. To pit your own life against another. Yes. To kill the taste of blood in your mouth. The moment of truth. Another man's life. In your sight! Yes! Not! Will they really teach me to shoot? Sure they will. A variety of weapons. To use a bayonet? Yes! <laughs> How about uh, hand-to-hand combat? Yes! To strangle someone, choke him, what? squeeze out his life in your own bare hands! I, I think you're getting carried away, uh, Harold. How about to uh, slit his throat? Well, I don't know I about like that. that. You can see the blood squirt out. Well, how about souvenirs? Souvenirs? Of your kill. Eyes, ears, nose, scalp, privates. Harold, hey, 
What would be the chance of getting one of these? Uh, Boy, to think I could maybe make my own. Harold, that's disgusting. It certainly is. Madam, who are you? Uh, I am petitioning for peace. Parasite. Harold. And I came out here to speak. Crazy parasite. Tommy uh, bastard. Harold, get the hell out of here. Don't you talk to me like that, you little... She's so, so wonderful in this. It's just so, like, full of life. No, she nails it. She totally gets the character, the meaning behind it. She gets every single scene. The way that you see her paying attention to him and listening to him, these things that he's, you know, craving, uh, Mm -hmm. you really believe it. You really believe that she is just, like, all about whatever he has going on. Well, the she's thing so that he's never moment. gotten unless he's with his therapist, which is a joke to him. I mean, he yeah. is honest with his therapist, but, you know. But he doesn't take the therapist seriously. No. 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 Maud is a much more effective therapist for him. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, so she yeah. lives in the moment. She lives in the moment. It's yeah. It's really delightful. It's one of my favorite movies, and I hadn't seen it in a while, so I was really happy to watch it again just the other day and uh, just kind of be in that world again after a little while. It's a good place to be. It's a good place (laughs) to be these days. It's a good place to be. It's a good place to be. Yeah. So there was a stage play that uh, had a very, very brief Broadway stint for performances. It ran uh, for two days. (laughs) Yeah. Two days. And um, it was not a musical. It was not a musical. Not a musical. I would have loved to have seen. I and I I bet that they do still do performance. Well, maybe not right oh, now yeah. during a pandemic, but you know, I bet that it comes up every now and again. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it does. Uh, I I also saw that there were planned that there was both a planned sequel and prequel. Uh, you were getting there. Well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go into it because yeah. I had before reading about this, I had. Pretty much the same idea. Not exactly the same because uh, Colin Higgins, who wrote Harold and Maude, had these ideas for these. And his ideas, well, one of them, the uh, the prequel, which is which focuses on Maude, features Richard Pryor's character from another Colin Higgins movie, Silver Streak. And it would be 
Ruth Gordon and Pryor playing their same roles and yeah. But Silver Streak hadn't I I don't know when this was oh, I guess nineteen seventy eight was I think when that so it Silver was Streak would have the, already been out. It was in the eighties, seventy six was Silver Streak. Um yeah. Yeah, so right. So in the, the Colin the, Higgins cinematic universe. Yeah, exactly. So um Colin Higgins this, this is from Wikipedia expressed interest in a 1978 about both a sequel and a prequel to Harold and Maud. The sequel Harold's story would have Court portray Harold's life after Maud. Higgins also imagined a prequel showing Maud's life before Harold. Grover and Maud had Maud learning how to steal cars from Grover Muldoon, the character portrayed by Richard Pryor in Higgins' 76 film Silver Streak. My ideas, which I did come up with before this, were two movies, Harold, and then also Maud. So it would be, and, and it's possible that it could be done where like, maybe they are the same movie and they like kind of flip flop between the two. But I think it'd be cool if there was a movie called Harold and a movie called Maud that came out the exact same day, you know, and Harold, this, my vision for Harold uh, would take place kind of present day. Uh, he's the same age as Maud was. And I was thinking that maybe his mother is still alive, but very, very old and like, you know, about to die and he wants to show her what it really means to live because she's never really felt like she she's always had a fake life you know yeah so he wants to show her in the last you know years or months or whatever of her life how to really live and then i thought that maybe it could be possible that he would have ended up with sunshine his third computer date that was i i was curious about that i i thought to myself well you know maybe you know, after the the car goes off and Harold's strumming on the banjo, which, by the way, that ending totally worked for me. And even though when I saw the car go off the cliff, I thought to myself, well, OK, yeah. he's like that was all he had. To, and I accepted it that way. But I liked the way that it ended with him. He and chose I thought life. to myself, I thought, to, yeah, train spotting. Hey. Train spotting. Uh, I knew you'd get that. Choose life. Yeah. Um, I was also looking at train spotting things uh, earlier today. So. You and McGregor on Fargo, you mean? I was. <laughs> uh, no, I was looking. Yeah, you know what? Uh, there was a tweet that I felt I needed to respond to, and it was asking for your favorite underwater scene. So, of course, I thought of you and McGregor swimming, <laughs> right. uh, diving headfirst into the toilet. So that was yeah. that was where I was in that train spot. I can't watch train spotting anymore. I have trouble watching train spotting. It's a hard watch. Now. It's it's intense. It's really intense. And yeah, it's kind of like how I famously intense. It's kind of like how I can't watch Boogie Nights after the like New Year's 19 like 80. Oh, OK. It's kind of like once William H. Macy shoots himself in Boogie Nights, it's it's like, yeah. OK, I don't want to wa- I don't want to. Everyone's getting into cocaine now really bad a lot. And I don't. Yeah, but then you have the and- sister Christian scene. Oh, okay. I, Alfred Molina. I yeah. I remember seeing I, when I saw that in the theater. We sat. I remember we had ended up having to sit really close because we went to go see it like right when it came out. It was like October, November ninety seven, mm-hmm. and or maybe even September. I don't remember, but I remember we we were sitting uh, towards the front and and def definitely. Uh, you know, it's intoxicated, <laughs> and and that scene with Alfred Molina was so damn intense. Yeah, 
<laughs> and it's I the felt, best. and especially because I was sitting so close to like the, the big screen, and and I was like, I feel like Mark Wahlberg right now. I can't get out, and this is yeah. really intense. <laughs> oh my god, that scene is brilliant. Yeah. yeah. All right. So sorry, you were starting to say about how the ending worked for you. Well, were was there something else yeah. that you wanted to mention about that? No, I feel like it's also I I think there's kind of like the cliche of the, you know, the car, the truck or whatever goes off the cliff. But uh, they jumped off like Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade Mm -hmm. when, uh, you know, they're fighting on the tank and the tank goes over the side and they're they're all, you know, Sean Connery and Denholm Elliott and uh, pour one out. Sean, Sean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pour pour one out for Sean. And, you know, they all think that Indy. What, yeah. you know fell off the cliff and yeah, then he's, he's standing there with them <laughs> yeah he shows so funny he walks up walks up behind them and is like looking down yeah. with them that's funny <laughs> um but and but i also thought to myself as the car's going off the cliff i thought oh it's like a Thelma and louise thing mm. and and i i was okay with that but i was to see him happy Right. Even after Maud's death. Yeah. And to seem happy to to get rid of that life. To to kind of he's putting that behind him. Exactly. And to give more context, he's driving uh this car that uh is constructed from a really awesome sporty Jaguar that his mother gets for him. That when she gives to him, it's like this beautiful green, but he paints it black and he takes the back off of it and converts it into like a hearse because he was driving a hearse that he got from the junkyard before that and now he has this this version that's kind of like it is the hybrid of fun and death and party in the front funeral in the back <laughs> and uh, yeah and you're right he it's his way of ending that that phase of his life and saying goodbye to those you know aspects of his life relating to death as being this thing that he is i don't know looking at amorously i guess and uh choosing life (laughs) i mean i guess if you think about it he's kind of he has experienced that and maybe as a as like what he owes to maude who who lived her life to the fullest until she decided she was done doing that, that, well, it would be an insult to her memory yeah. for him to not do the same. So, you know what? Maybe he does. Uh, it would be interesting if maybe even if whatever story it would be following up with him and his mother. Yeah. And it, what's interesting is it's like such a beloved classic that a remake would almost seem sacrilege. But I was kind of yeah. thinking about that and thinking about a looser type of remake. Like I was thinking about a, a like just kind of just thinking about in the context of COVID and, uh, you know, there's a lot of assisted living places near near where I live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see people and they're, you know, these people who live inside these homes those are the people who they come into contact with most are like the, you know, the orderlies and the people who work there. Yeah. So I imagined, well, what if you had a Harold and Maude set up, you know, where they meet this way, where Mm. it's, he's working there because he's kind of fascinated. Because people keep on dying and he gets to experience that. Well, I mean, 
yes. Uh, so I, I was thinking, I was thinking about that, but I was also wondering to myself, I was like, what if Wes Anderson just directed Harold and what, like, what, yeah, would, right. what would it be? And I was like, I just thought to myself, my God, Tilda Swinton as the mother. <laughs> oh my God. Would be amazing. So good. <laughs> would be amazing. And, and she'd Bill also Murray be the, as the uncle. Also, I was going to say Tilda Swinton could also be the uncle. Oh, Tilda, Tilda, well, yeah, I mean, Tilda Swinton can, you know, she, she's like Willem Dafoe can just like play. And Willem Dafoe is also in the Wes Anderson crew. Yeah. So Wes, Willem Dafoe could be the uncle. <laughs> yeah. Um. Just real quick. I, I want to go back to what I was talking about with the mod movie that I was going to oh, do. Yeah. The mod prequel. Oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry to, to go back and forth so much. So this, so my idea for this would be a prequel that takes place when she's around Harold's age. And maybe it's just like the la- the last days of her time in like the concentration camp. And maybe it's like starting when she's leaving the concentration camp and kind of forming this mentality about who she is and uh, her place in the world and life and death. And I was thinking about, uh, well, first I was like trying to think about movies that, you know, take place at the end of like the Holocaust and the only, and then I was like, Oh, Jojo rabbit, you know, is kind of a, and it's, it fits kind of the style and vibe of a, of a movie like Harold and Maude. So it's like, could really take place like right in that like last moment where it's like, what does happen when she, when somebody is freed from a concentration camp? Like, what is that like? And I know that there's, you know, dozens of, if not hundreds of Holocaust movies, and I don't know if any of them have explored that that much, but it's something that I'd be curious about. And I feel like Maude would be the person I'd want to see experiencing that. So the thing is with that, if she's going to be Harold's age, it would be like 1912. Oh, I, I mean, you know, she's young. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So she's younger, right? Because it's ni- 1971. She's 80. So, I mean, she'd be in her 50s. Oh, yeah. I guess that's true. Well, still, I mean, she could be in her 50s. Who cares? Naomi Watts. I mean, is Naomi, Naomi Watts, uh, could she play? Uh, why, Na- why Naomi Watts? I don't know. It just popped into my head. <laughs> I was thinking like physically. I was like physically who would play a younger mod? And uh-huh. I guess a mod who's, who's at about... Uh, Natasha Leone. I know she's younger, but I could totally see her being that age mod. She's got that, she's got the energy. I'm also trying to kind of think of like, well, who would potentially grow up to be like an 80 year old Ruth Gordon? Natasha Leone. Natasha Leone, really? Yeah. I mean, I love Natasha Leone, don't get me wrong, but, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I think she, she'd be great. That would be really, I think that would be really interesting. It would be interesting to see a story. Like, like you said, it's, there's a lot of Holocaust movies out there. And although I can't think of any that really focus on just like Schindler's list has the liberation, but you're, you're, you know, there's a lot before that. Absolutely. This would start with being free with liberation. Um, Oh, so what's interesting. So actually what I want to point you point, you in the direction of is the Amazon series Hunters. Oh yeah, we've talked about that, and I still haven't seen it. Similar, I, it, it, there's there is a there's kind of a thematic connection where there's a character who's a Holocaust survivor, and it 
in flashbacks kind of traces mm. her life after the Holocaust. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to check out Hunters. Yeah. It, you know, yeah. I, what is it? Eight episodes and yeah, it's, it's manageable. It's worth watching. Oh, you know who's in it? Who's really good? Oh, man. What's it? Ted from from How I Met Your Mother. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Oh, um, Josh Radner. Josh Radner is in it, and I didn't even recognize him for like most of the first episode, hmm. but he's he's great in it. Uh, Carol Kane. Carol Kane, I hear, is awesome in it. Car- Carol Kane is awesome. Saul Rubinek is, is in it. So some some great character actors mm-hmm. who pop yeah. up. But yeah, I, yeah, Hunters was was worth watching and has that connection to uh, what does a especially a strong and willful person do. After being both while in a concentration camp, but also liberated, like they show some of the stuff of like when she's in a refugee camp mm. and like what what goes on in the refugee yeah. camp after that, because that that was what happened. Sure. Yeah, that was where they went. So so that would be, you know, of course, not the same. But having more, I was kind of I was trying to think of, uh, you know, just kind of like who would be good mods like who would i want to see play mod if they ever did and it's all it's also hard because these days actresses who are who might be around the right age yeah might not look the right age right like i was thinking of like betty white and i'm like isn't she like 98 like yeah and then then, what about goldie hawn like goldie hawn could very well be close to 80 but i don't know that goldie hawn no it doesn't really look that 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 much closer to. But I was thinking like she would be a good, like a Goldie Hawn, Chevy Chasey Goldie Hawny type of this. Oh my god, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's a really tough one. I mean, I'm I am really filmed in Natasha Leone. I gotta say, okay. uh, energy stature. I feel like could really really work. Oh. You know what it was where Goldie Hawn came up? Because I was trying to think of like the Grover and Maud. Because I was like, that mm. would be fun. That would be something fun. And I was like, oh, Goldie Hawn and Samuel L. Jackson, huh. Will okay. Smith. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm trying. I'm. I'm trying to think of someone who like a like a really good pair mm-hmm. <laughs> for this. You know, Holocaust survivor teams up with car thief thing. Yeah, I don't know. I the thing is like it takes away from I it. don't care so much about the fact that she steals cars. Like I think that no. it's a fun character quality, but it's not a movie. No, I agree with you there. I I I mean ultimately there's really nothing that needs to be done with this. I think a I think a musical would honestly be worth a shot. I think you could do some I think there's some opportunities for a musical, not exactly your traditional big style Broadway musical, yeah, but, but like a more a, but even like, you know, like a Sondheimy I don't yeah. know. I could see I could see that. Like a more like an intimate musical, the type of thing that would that would have a good run off Broadway. Sure. Kristen Chenoweth as Maud. Oh geez. Jonathan Groff as Harold. I don't No, 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 no. No, thank no, you. No, I yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, Ben. So, oh, what's his what's his name from? Uh, oh, why can't I think of his name? Ben Platt. Ben Platt. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, nothing should happen with this movie, but that's just where our minds are. <laughs> oh, there was a remake there. The uh, for French TV in 1978. Really? There was there was a oh, remake. God. Yeah. But the thing is, like, 
a lot of what this movie is is about the you know the the formula that Hal Ashby had the actors that he had the music mm-hmm. that he had like that's really what how this movie comes together is with that just just so perfect cast and um clearly Bud Court has been active but you know this was really his peak and uh it's really hard to come off of a movie like this He's a very, like, unique actor, and he's perfect for this role. Yeah. But what was he going to, like, where was he going to go from from there? Like, I'd be curious to know, like, what roles he was up for, because he would have been up for roles against, um, you know, possibly someone like a Dustin Hoffman or... Uh, you know, he he would have been a little young, I, I guess, to be in that, like, you know, Robert Redford mm-hmm. category. Yeah, just but... a little, but not by much. No, not by much. Right. So, I mean, I get, it could have been that, like, maybe, hey, if you're a, a you know, up and coming actor in the 1970s, there is a lot of competition. Yeah, I mean, before this, he was in MASH. Um I don't remember. I know he was in other stuff, but I don't know if I really remember him from much aside from MASH. I remember him. I remember he was in Dogma. Oh, okay. He he's in the beginning of Dogma. I think he plays like not God, but you know, I um sometimes I think about latter day Bud Court. And I think that and then sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, well, he was in that. And then I'm like, oh, no, that was Paul Williams. I've, I, for some reason, connect the two of them in their uh, kind of present day acting roles. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I'm looking at his IMDb right now. He was in he was in Pollock. He's the, been the in Jackson a ton Pollock. of stuff. He's been in a ton of stuff. It's just like. But I'm a cheerleader with Natasha, Natasha Leone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, but yeah, a lot of what he did, he's done a lot of like voice work. He had a part. He was in Heat. Yes, he was in Heat, which I've been meaning to rewatch because uh, I watched Rushmore uh, after watching Harold and Maude because they do get talked about a lot in the same conversations. And um, there's the scene in Rushmore that's like taken from a Val Kilmer scene in Heat where he's buying explosives. And uh, the way that he like shows his ID and everything is taken directly from Heat. Fifteen sticks? Yes, please. And could you make the order out to Ready Demolition, Tucson, Arizona? Thank you very much. Wow, I never knew that. Yeah. I never noticed that. It's when he's getting like he's getting explosives for his final play, Heaven and Hell. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Best play his, ever, man. <laughs> his Vietnam era epic. Yeah. yeah. Ah, so good. But a lot of like that movie, like other like some other Wes Anderson movies get so awkward and kind of emotionally. I get I get so frustrated at times watching that. Well, I mean, you know, Harold and Maude, it's the story of a seriously made December romance. Uh, Maude is the the genesis of the manic pixie dream girl, you know, this like. (laughs) <laughs> this magical presence that enters a lost boy's life and changes his world. And uh, in Rushmore, 
it's a he wants it to be a May December romance and he wants this woman to, you know, fix all of his problems, but she won't. And uh, I don't know, antics ensue. <laughs> but Jason Schwartzman in Rushmore does have a very Bud Court in Harold and Maud quality. Yeah. And I, I've always been a big Jason Schwartzman fan. I think it started with Rushmore and then I got into, you know, his music with um, Phantom Planet and then Coconut Records. And I feel like I just kind of followed everything he did after that, even the weird stuff. Um, I remember going in, uh, I, I mean, it was, I think 2000. And so I was still in high school, but I like went into New York by myself to like, go see the movie CQ, the Roman Coppola movie uh, with um, Jeremy Davies and and Jason Schwartzman had like a small role in it. And I was like, I'll go, you know, at, way out of my way to go see this movie that's in like a basement movie theater somewhere because it's the <laughs> only place where it's playing. And uh, oh, there's yeah. so many of those great small movie theaters in New York. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That I really hope do get to come back. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I hope that they're not already gone. Like I, the Village Cinemas East uh, off Union Square, I've, mm-hmm. you know, gone to see some foreign films, some independent films there. It's just like, it's that movie going experience that you don't get when you go to the multiplex. Mm, totally. Yeah. 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 Reminded, I, I mean, me of the, reminded me of the Westfield twin. Oh, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, when I lived in Philadelphia for a time, I, I worked at the, it was called the Ritz Five. I don't know if it's still called that anymore. It was bought out by Landmark Cinemas, um, I think, shortly after I left Philadelphia. But, you know, the, the Ritz theaters in Philadelphia were known for showing the, you know, the smaller movies, um, mm-hmm. which was really exciting. I have a lot of fondness for my time working there. And, um Yeah. And it was probably around that time that I saw what we're going to be doing for our next movie. Are we ready to talk about that? I'm I'm very much ready. This is a movie I'm very grateful for. Yes. And yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. We didn't talk about how this this is our month of movies that we're grateful for. Yeah. Uh, just before we move on, Harold and Maude, I am very thankful for. Um, it kind of ushered me into... I'd say 70s cinema, but also the work of Hal Ashby. It was maybe one of the first movies where I did have a, I just felt a strong connection to it. It just spoke to me and um, really got me more into watching movies and loving movies. And that's kind of why I'm, I'm thankful for it. This is why we love movies. <laughs> okay, Siskel or Ebert, whichever. Well, I, if I remember correctly, Siskel and Ebert both liked our movie that we're going to be talking about next time. And why not? Because it's brilliant and wonderful. It is Terry Gilliam's 1991, dare I say, masterpiece, yeah. The Fisher King. Love The Fisher King. We'll talk about it plenty on the next episode. But I will share with you a brief story from is it yesterday, two days ago. I... um. So currently Barnes and Noble is having a sale on Criterion movies, 50% off. And I think that Barnes and Noble, aside from Criterion's website, is the only place where you can go get them. I mean, it might be the only place where you can physically buy such and such a big collection of them. 
Well, John, did you happen to look in Suncoast when you passed the only <laughs> remaining Suncoast? <laughs> so here's the so here's what happened. I I went on the Barnes and Noble website and I saw that um, the Lloyd Center, the the mall in Portland, um, has one copy of the Blu-ray Criterion Fisher King. So I was like, great. I buzzed over there and I hadn't been in a mall in a long time, especially during COVID times. Being in a mall is really weird. So many empty shelves of stores, no kiosks or anything, very few people. But there it is, the Suncoast Motion Picture Company living and breathing. It was so funny. I went in there and I was like, some things are exactly as I remember them. They did not have the the, the square stills uh, along the ceiling uh, that I talked about in the last episode. But, um, you know, the everything felt exactly the same. There was, you know, a, a rack of like hats with like movie and TV show themes. And one of them was like a Dunder Mifflin hat. And I was like, who is now in 2020 wearing a dunder mifflin hat i i walk around the corner there's a guy wearing a dunder mifflin hat that right there so many (laughs) dare i i mean i think the office is more popular now than it was when it was actually on that yeah that's possible i don't know it's just so funny to me that like these things are being sold New and probably very regularly at Suncoast. So anyway, anyway, so, so I, COVID has not affected the no. What it's is like it a with Twinkie. Oregon? <laughs> what is, tell them about the Twinkie? What is it about Oregon where so you've got like the last remaining blockbuster? And I don't know yeah. if this is the last remaining Suncoast, but I'm just going to call it that. I'm curious. I'm going to try to look it up. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm trying to think of where I've gotten Criterion because uh, I think all my Criterion, I, I don't have that many Criterion collection. Actually, as we were discussing, uh, I, I apparently only own Terry Gilliam films <laughs> in their Criterion editions, but just uh, online and I guess like used DVD shops. Yeah. So Suncoast, by the way, is now owned by FYE for your entertainment, which I didn't know still existed. Um, So I don't know how many Suncoasts there still are. Um, But anyway, so I'm at the Lloyd Center. I go to the Barnes and Noble. I'm going through all of the movies, the Criterion movies, and going through the Fs, I see the DVD for Fisher King, but not the Blu-ray. Go back on my phone. Look, it says the Blu-ray's there. And I go up to the guy working there and I was like, yeah, it says online that you have this. And he's like, I just sold it. (laughs) So I um, ask him, like, are there any other locations nearby that have it? And uh, he says there's one um, there's this place called uh, Clackamas Town Square. It's another mall. It is it's like a 22 minute drive. So I was like, all right, they have a copy. I'm going over there. And. It's, you know, it's far out of the way from where I live. So I get there. I go to the section. I'm flipping through the Fs. Don't see it. Ask a guy there. We go back and somebody had put it like in the, like between the G's and H's. So I was just like, oh my God, heart attack. So uh, I pick that up. I get being there also. Um, And so here's something funny. I, so I have, uh, Barnes and Noble gift cards that otherwise I would never use because I like to buy things like locally whenever I can. And Criterion Mm -hmm. videos for the most part, aren't something that are like a 
ma and pa shop kind of thing. So I was like, I feel okay about getting these with these gift cards and get up to the, to the counter. I use them. I've got like five bucks left on a little happy Hanukkah gift card that I've had for who knows how long. And I think to myself, I'm only going to lose this. So I turn to the person behind me and I say, you want five bucks? It was this woman and her daughter. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, happy Hanukkah. And I went on my way. Only came to realize hours later, the person I gave it to is somebody I'm actually friends with on Twitter and did not put the piece, never met in person, never met in person, put the pieces together and was like, wait a second, that was you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> did this person just like they they tweeted something about yep, she like, tweeted oh, wow. some like not even about that but like the something with the books that she had and i like saw i like i only saw her when i handed her the gift card but i just people are wearing masks and everything and it just like kind of dawned on me and i was like i know that she lives in portland and i was just like weird crazy shot in the dark were you at the Barnes and Noble in Clackamas? And she was like, oh my God, did you give me five bucks? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, really, really bizarre. And it's like, these are COVID times. We are recording this in November, 2020. Uh, we are, I mean, I mean, people from the future can tell us how far into this we actually are, but we're a ways into this. And to have any kind of experience now is mind blowing. And that's the most of an experience I've had in a very long time of like a a real thing, like a real thing that just happens. That's really, yeah, that's, that's bizarre. It is truly bizarre. So that's when I, when I texted you and said, it's a story, I'll tell it on the podcast. There you go. Well, and yep, it was meant to be much like perhaps some of the events in the Fisher King. The Fisher King. And and by the way, how excited is it? We are bookending movies that we're grateful for a month with Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Robin yeah, Williams. Pour one out. Uh, well, yeah. Dan, uh, as you drive your Jaguar hearse off a cliff, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. Good journey.